Welcome to The Invested Investor. I'm sat opposite Raymond Look. Raymond and I just met at the ACA Summit 2019, and I actually heard about you from a business investor. Once I heard about the business, I wanted to kind of have a chat to you and get to know you because you're an investor, a seasoned investor. You're an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur. You're currently the founder of Hockey Stick, which is an open database of startups and investors. I just kind of want to hear how it all began. Did you always want to be an entrepreneur? You know, I've thought about that a lot because, you know, as you get older, you kind of look back and you try to find the seeds of, you know, your current life and your maybe in your childhood or something. And, and I did, you know, grow up in an entrepreneurial family. Both my parents were immigrants. And so along the kind of immigrant journey, you do the different things you need to to survive. And they, you know, tried out different businesses. And growing up, you know, I remember in high school, there was a government program where you could take out a loan to start a business. Crazy program, I'm sure it had terrible returns for the government. But I ended up taking out a loan and starting a DJ company and running these kind of, you know, hormone-filled teen dances in like church basements and terrible, terrible things. How old were you at this stage? I was maybe, I'm going to say 14. And how much did they give you? 3,000 Canadian dollars, uh, princely sum. The amazing thing is after the end of the summer, I returned it, you know, had a lot of fun along the way, but I didn't really stick with entrepreneurship until after university. And I actually studied classical music. So I was a musician, was my first love. I played piano, I was a composer, still love music. And I went to McGill to study composition, piano, performance. But I, I think I was always a generalist. And while I was studying piano, I was also studying computer science and hanging out in the computer lab all day. And the day after graduation, I started a software company. And I think that I made that jump because I realized I loved software as much as I love music. So it wasn't you know, a real conscious choice. I just decided, oh, music's great. I love something else more and took the plunge. Okay. So after the disco and, we, and we're, we're after university, what was that first company that you founded? Yeah, it was a company with the very memorable name Hard Boiled Egg, a multimedia company. Think of it like, you know, back in 97 was when we started. It was a early stage kind of internet development consultancy, web development, you know, software development company. It was a very interesting time to be doing that because you had to build your company and kind of invent who you are as a company. But the internet, the protocols were being invented. You know, I started that company right after Netscape released their first browser. JavaScript was in beta. Java was in alpha. So it was kind of a bit of a frontier time when everything was broken, nothing worked. But nothing worked for anybody. So if you could be, you know, 5%, you know, more functional than the next person, then it was a miracle because everything was crashing. Your computer literally would just crash. That Mac reboot, you know, that ding, I probably heard that a hundred times a day. (laughs) So I actually think that was a really fun time to start a business because of that feeling that, you know, I think for entrepreneurs it's important that you feel you're breaking things and, you know, no entrepreneur starts a company to be part of a club, right? You you become an entrepreneur because you feel you don't belong And at that time, when the internet was emerging, there were no clubs, there was no blogs, there was no established norms. And I think those are fertile conditions for entrepreneurs. So it was an exciting time, obviously. What happened to Hard Boiled Egg? I always recommend to people, because I I didn't have any business training at the time, 
And I always recommend to entrepreneurs, if you want a fast and really great way to train yourself, don't do an MBA. I did an MBA later for fun, but run a service company or some company that's powered purely by cash flow. Because we had no, I had no credit card, no loan, no investment. So we literally lived, you know, hand to mouth, payroll to payroll, and built quite a large company at the end of it, just purely based on trial and error, or I like to call it error and trial. So we just started, you know, doing contracts, building software, and kind of rode the wave of the whole dot-com explosion. And then we actually spun out another company called OpenDesk, you know, and we really caught the bug, you know, it's my first lesson in kind of tech cycles is, you know, we were getting approached by VCs, everyone was quitting jobs, lawyers were quitting jobs and starting companies. So we had this idea for almost like a Google Docs kind of thing or Google Apps, but you know, 15 years before Google Apps. And we were approached by some investors and said, you know, if you spin this idea out, we'll invest in it. And so we did that. And that was in, I think, 99. And that company was a real lesson because ultimately that company failed. It wasn't able to raise money after the dot-com kind of crash. So did you actually close HBE down to then spin out an open, open desk? No, we didn't close it down. I found a different CEO to run HBE because it was a profitable company. And that kind of became its own thing. And then I transitioned to running this other company full-time. So many lessons were learned. One, which is because for a period of time, I was a CEO of two companies. And so I learned not to do that because it's really bad on the business, first of all. And it's obviously bad on your lifestyle. Yeah. So I transitioned to running this other company, OpenDesk. And, you know, the lesson I learned, again, I'm really grateful now at the time, you know, it was, it was very stressful, but really grateful to have learned those lessons of, you know, when you capitalize a business with one business plan and you raise money early, you're really committed to one path. And it's very difficult to change the path. You can change the business, but if it's been capitalized as high growth, you know, go for it, moonshot, and with a certain timeline, if you turn around and say, oh, but I think we can turn this into a, you know, profitable cash flow kind of business, it doesn't work. Yeah. So you exited to another company. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that and kind of the process of it? And were you approached? Did you approach them? Well, in that case, you know, because capital was drying up and the whole market was drying up. So we actively, you know, worked with the board and sought out a buyer. So sometimes you have to do that, that, um, you know, you ideally want to just be getting multiple bids and driving up the price, but the market was not that at the time. Companies were just going out of business, going bankrupt, and, uh, you know, employees were showing up at their door with a pink slip. And we really wanted to avoid that. So we had more of a, you know, process you know, it wasn't an exit that made all of our investors huge returns, but their expectation, I mean, it's interesting is that a lot of those funds ended up closing as well. So their, you know, distressed portfolios were being sold to other companies, other funds, actually. It was a very tough time. It was a tough time for everybody. All those lawyers who had quit their law firms to join startups ended up going back and working at a law firm. But I think what happened after that was really interesting that in a kind of a recession, you know, all the people who were not serious leave and you're left with people who are really serious about starting companies. And some of the greatest companies have been created in a recession. So after that initial experience, I ended up working uh, actually the one time in my career where I worked for somebody else. I was an investor and a CTO in a pharmaceutical a software company. And then we grew that. It went public, actually. It was a perfect kind of little 
one and a half to two year kind of period where I was thinking about my next project. But I, I love working. I get excited by projects. So I had known the founders and they said, oh, you know, can you come in and help us with product and help grow this company? You know, we want to take it public. So I did that and had a great experience. But I always knew there was a, a time limit that I'm not sure I'm so employable by other people. <laughs> um, even though I'm, I consider myself a nice person, maybe it's because I'm Canadian. But uh, When did you kind of transition and start angel investing? Yeah, it was right after I exited that company. I started Flow Ventures, which is a consulting company. And really, a lot of entrepreneurs do this. When you don't know what to do, you start a consulting company because people start calling you and saying, can you do this? Can you do that? And you know, what you really want to do is take a holiday, but that never happens. And I don't think I actually want to do that. That's more me than anybody else. So I started to think about investing at that time. And it was maybe a year or so after that I connected with my first angel group. This is in Montreal. And, you know, they're one of the largest angel groups in Canada now called Ange Quebec or Quebec Angels. I'd done some of my own investing, but I joined this group because I'd never been in a room full of other investors before. And what I liked and still like about angel investing is that every angel has a background. So they're all crazy entrepreneurs, you know, built businesses or successful people from all walks of life. So not the typical, you know, banker, finance person you know, people, you know, show up in their motorcycles and their leather jackets and their suits and ties. So I, I really like that. So I started catching the bug of investing and I like to spend time with entrepreneurs. So that's probably the, the most fun thing in my job is just being surrounded by entrepreneurs. There's always sunny optimism, never a recession. And, you know, you're constantly flooded by new ideas, which makes it difficult as an angel because you get so excited by so many ideas and you don't, always have the time or you know enough free capital in your bank account to invest in every company you want to. How do you think your entrepreneurial ventures then impacted your angel investing? Well, first thing is it gave me access to tremendous deal flow because you know if you decide to put up a sign saying I'm an investor but you don't come from that world, you won't know anybody. And as any you know early stage investor will tell you if you don't have deal flow, you don't have anything, right? Again, that's a reason why people join angel groups is to get access to deal flow. But all of my friends and connections were entrepreneurs. I had, by that time, started organizing meetups, conferences, started blogging about entrepreneurship. So I was kind of an organizer in the community as well. And that gave me access to a lot of interesting companies. And my approach was always, I like to sit down with entrepreneurs and just talk. It didn't always lead to me writing a check, but I like to get to know them. I like to help. So I was very generous with time and advice, whatever that was worth, because I knew, you know, having been on the other side of the table, I knew that when an entrepreneur reaches out and says, you know, I really need help with something, they really need help with it. It's life or death. And I've been in situations where I've been brought in to help shut down companies. You know, there was one company I was advising just as a friend, you know, as a volunteer, and the CEO really needed help laying off half the staff. And I was there when we made the announcement and we ended up to save money, hiring a construction company to build, it was was quite a big office. And we built a wall to divide the office in two to save money so that the company would remain afloat. And so, you know, I had a passion for just entrepreneurship. Not all of those led to investments, but I think, you know, I always took the attitude of trying to give first and then you'll figure out what happens later. Yeah. 
What do you think your biggest takeaways and lessons learned from being an angel have been? I think that being an angel, there's different stages of it, but I think that you know, at the beginning, the big lesson I learned was that you know, my journey and my story was only one story. I learned so much from other angels, in particular, who made money outside of tech, because my entire community was tech. So you know, everyone was, you know, made money through selling a company or running a consulting company or you know, the, like the lucky ones going public. But I also met lots of other people from manufacturing and retail and real estate, very successful, very smart people that I, I learned from. So I think that just broadening my own perspective, because angel investing doesn't mean just investing in tech. It means investing in anything crazy that, you know, gets you excited. I think I also learned that, you know, even though it's kind of a independent kind of cowboy kind of thing, there is a discipline to it. You know, you do have to do your due diligence, whatever that means to you as an individual. You do have to dot the I's and you know, cross the T's with your legal documents. And for me, in hindsight, when I look back, the entrepreneurs who were able to communicate with me as an investor, who respected the fact that I had written a check into that company, they were kind of better at communicating with me and more transparent about their business. Those were the ones that were more successful. So I, I started to look for that. And then, you know, dot, 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 years later, it kind of led to starting Hockey Stick as a data-based kind of company trying to encourage everybody in the market to be more transparent. So going back to the day, I remember one investment I made in an education, like ed tech company. And the beginning, it was, you know, pretty good. But by the end, the transparency and the information flow was so bad that I didn't know that they had closed the company until 18 months later. And I got something from the tax authority saying, oh, you know, do you want to declare a loss on this? I said, well, why would I do that? It's like, oh, this company, you know, they, they closed down. And I had to call the CEO and find out. And I really thought that's a bad way to invest. And that started the whole journey of, well, maybe there's a company, maybe there's an idea here because... If I'm feeling like, you know, why should I be an angel investor? I could just take that money, buy an ETF, get a rental property, and that's great. You know, there's structures and information flows that already support that, but that's not what I wanted to do, right? So I thought there's got to be a need for something better. Yeah. I'd just like to touch on something that was said at a talk on the first day here by Carla Harris on founders fatigue. You said that you don't really take holidays, but how do you feel about that from both an investor point of view and your entrepreneur hat on? Well, my attitude about that's totally changed. I mean, I think that there's more, there's more awareness of kind of the mental health effects on entrepreneurship, the negative effects. I mean, there is this kind of, and I was part of this too when I was younger, kind of bragging about, you know, not taking vacations for seven years, which is true back in the day. But, you know, all that stuff, burning the candle at both ends, insert analogy. You know, now I have a very different opinion about that, you know, up to a certain point, you do need to be willing to do anything. But doing anything 24 hours a day is not going to help your business. And, and it's going to hurt the returns because the first thing you lose is focus. Effort you know, only gets you so far. Focus is ultimately what builds your business. But now I think that I'm more aware and I, you know, I, I look for this in other people that you, know, you need to do something for yourself. You need to get your focus. It's not just about work-life balance. I hate that term because, you know, what does that mean? But it's about, you know, having, you know, your own personal happiness will make you a better entrepreneur. It'll make you a better manager. And your own 
kind of ability to focus depends on, I mean, Steve Jobs would just go for walks. Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, there's a great story about they were being interviewed. And I'm not comparing myself to those people, by the way, but um, <laughs> a journalist looked at their day book and it was empty. And they said, well, you know, if I fill it full of meetings and everything, when do I have time to think and react? And so for me, it's podcasts, audiobooks on the subway. I walk a lot. I meditate. That's something I learned later in life is uh, that's given me so much crisper a focus on what I'm doing instead of just running around and, you know, when in doubt, just grind more that really doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think there's resilience and there's pushing through it, but there's also being able to understand, you know, do you need to have that break, don't you? Yeah, and I think resilience means resilience over 10 years, 20 years. And I think when you're young, you don't, you don't think about that, but your resilience is resilience for the marathon, not for the sprint. And I think I would say the same thing on both sides of the table. When you're an investor, you know, understanding that being an angel investor or early stage investor means holding your positions for over a decade on average. That's what the data tells us. And I think that people, you know, investors probably think that things will happen faster. Of course, I want things to happen faster too. But just having that stamina to say, you know what, I'm going to be in it for the long haul. You need that as an angel. You need that as an entrepreneur. Let's just touch on another part of your jigsaw puzzle here. So you've got Year One Labs. Can you just go through a bit of what you do with Year One Labs? Yeah, so Year One Labs is something that I started with a few entrepreneur buddies. You know, we were sitting around, like, as entrepreneurs often do, like you're already busy, you're already volunteering, blogging, running a company. But when you get together, you think, oh, let's just start something else. It's ill-advised strategy for that work-life balance I was talking about. But we thought, how do we kind of build great companies? How do we take the knowledge that we have and some of the money and from people we know? And, and how do we, you know, create that very first step, which is the reason we called it year one labs, right? How do we juice that first year of a startup's existence? And we decided, let's just try to iterate on this model instead of starting a fund or running kind of a, at the time, Techstars and, and YC were like the big accelerators. And, and we had this idea of a pre-idea accelerator because we thought half the time when entrepreneurs come in to pitch, their ideas are really crappy and they'll find out when they try to do it and they have to pivot and, you know, our ideas are crappy, their ideas are crappy. What if we went before the idea and look for other characteristics? So we actually ran hackathons and ran kind of events. We ran the first Google hackathon outside of Mountain View. They came and co-ran that with us in a basement of a building in Montreal and so we would bring in mostly coders at the time. We'd do these hackathons and, you know, 48 hours build an app. And then we kind of look at those entrepreneurs and we didn't care about the app they built or the idea. We'd say, you know, this person and this person, like you guys are really interesting. We like the hustle, the characteristics that you have. And we're going to give you $50,000. You know, if you don't have an idea, we're going to give you a pool of ideas. And that was our thesis is we can put them all in the room. We all sat in the room with them for a year and open doors. So we had the idea of 100% bet on the jockey. We brought in a number of different teams uh, from all over. I think our first was from San Diego, a couple of entrepreneurs in Toronto and Ottawa. And we had no idea whether it was going to work, but we had raised a fund to invest in these companies. And then we did it, you know, four of us were kind of like GPs, you know, just running it. And it was a tremendous amount of fun because 
we got to be entrepreneurs and investors at the same time. And we were literally cold call and just very, very hands-on. It was a great journey. The first company we kind of built was actually a company that we also came up with the idea for this business. But we gave the idea to the entrepreneur because you know, we said, the idea doesn't matter. It's the people, right? And they ended up launching a South by Southwest. It was a mobile location-based kind of Q&A platform called Local Mind. They did really well at South by Southwest, ended up moving to San Francisco. And I think 18 months after they graduated, we sold that company to Airbnb. And they ended up becoming key people at Airbnb for that company's mobile push. And one of them just left, actually. And so, you know, at the time when we were negotiating, we just said, you know, we just want shares in the company. We don't want cash. And you know, going back to what I was saying about stamina is that we're still holding those shares. And, you know, eight years later, you know, I'm still on paper the managing director of that fund only because we're waiting for that exit. Yeah. So, you know, I thought the exit would happen much earlier, but there was that trend of staying private, raising billion dollar late rounds. And so, you know, when that IPO happens, you know, it'll return the fund many times over. And, but, you know, I still see some of the LPs from time to time. And I, we kind of joke about it now that hopefully we'll get out at the 10 year anniversary. <laughs> but looking at the data, actually, 10 is actually probably the average now. So because it was an entrepreneurial venture, we were about to raise another, a bigger version, go bigger. And then we all quit and said, we just like being entrepreneurs. And we all started companies. It ended up being a funny name because we didn't think we'd name it Year One Labs because it was only going to exist for one year, <laughs> but it, it ended up doing that. You know, after that journey, you know, several things happened in my life. You know, I met my now wife and she was living in Toronto. I was living in Montreal. So I used to drive six hours to Toronto every weekend where I fell in love with audiobooks and podcasting, by the way. Nice. But, you know, usually there's only two reasons you ever move anywhere is love or work. And so I moved for love. I've been in Toronto ever since. And my mother passed away at that time too. So it was a lot of things kind of said, you know, it's time to leave where I considered Montreal home. It was time to leave Montreal and find a new home. So that was a big change. But I moved right when a new ecosystem was emerging that's since really skyrocketed. So it was a really fun time for me. That's brilliant. So you've moved to Toronto. What gave you the idea for Hockey Stick? You know, the seed was planted originally when I was kind of, you know, unhappy with the amount of visibility I was getting. I always felt kind of annoyed and, you know, a little bit miffed at the idea that, let me get this straight. I'm going to write a big check from my personal bank account. It's highly risky. It's illiquid. And you have no track record. I get that. But on the other side, then I'm going to get no data, no visibility, no nothing. So it seems like what's in it for me? So that was the seed that was planted. After I moved back to Toronto, I actually forgot to mention, I started a accounting software company and we sold that. What number is that on the founder list? I don't, I don't remember, <laughs> but uh, it was called Scalability. I don't know if that's just me, my level of craziness or other people's, but you know, I can't sit still. So ideas always come to me. So I thought, oh, accounting and you know, like small business accounting and bookkeeping is a lot of data. I'm really interested in that space because you know, as an entrepreneur, you always do your own accounting up to a certain point. So we started this, you know, built this kind of like almost like an ERP business for small accounting firms to kind of be able to scale because it's not a scalable business. And we built that, had a really great piece of software. And then some VC friends of mine said, you know, we're really struggling with data collection and kind of we have such crap data about our portfolio, even after we write the check. 
And I said, hey, wait a minute. I had this idea, you know, when I was living in Montreal and we, over beers, started talking about it. And then they said, we'll be your first customer. We'll write a check. You know, we'll prepay a year in advance. You know, it's quite a large fund. And please go build that. And I said, wait a minute. Remembering rule number one is don't be a CEO of two companies. So I just said, you know, do I really believe in this to go all in? And the answer was absolutely yes. So we sold that company to actually an accounting firm who was interested in kind of running with that as their own platform and maybe building it as a product. You know, maybe when I was, if I was younger, I would kind of try to do both and do this and do that. But I just said, if I'm going to have focus, I'm just going to jump right into Hockey Stick. We had customers already, right? It's from day one. And uh, that started that journey of scratching an itch that I had, the market saying, we have this problem. And that's just the beginning, of course, right? You know, just because you have customers and a need, dot, 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 you're done. It really just is the start line. But it was a start line that I knew a lot about because I was an investor myself. And I think that if you start companies, you have to have some competitive advantage. So mine was that I knew the market. I had a lot of connections in the angel world and in the venture world and in the entrepreneurial world. So it was easier for me to not make those mistakes. I could go make other more creative mistakes. For international listeners, why is it called Hockey Stick? Ah, that's a great question. So the Canadian answer is we're a hockey mad country. So we find any and all reasons to insert hockey into everything. <laughs> but it's not just Canadian, because I'm sure if you have listeners in the Nordic countries and Russia, which hockey is the great nations as well. But, you know, Hockey Stick is this kind of J-curve, this idea of exponential growth. And you may be at the blade of the stick and you're you know, kind of growing linearly 10%, 20% a year. And, but when you hit an inflection point, you really start to rocket up that curve. And you want this as an entrepreneur and you also want this as an investor. But it is an aspirational curve, right? And not everyone achieves it, but we wanted a name that captured this aspiration. Every entrepreneur in the world wants to achieve hockey stick growth. For us, you know, the downside of naming yourself hockey stick is that every single day of your life, People are asking you, so have you achieved hockey stick growth yet? <laughs> so if you haven't yet, you're really, oh yeah, just, you know, just, just forget about that for now. <laughs> but you know, we, part of being an entrepreneur is putting yourself out there, which I like, is you're saying, my name is Raymond. Look, I started this company. It's going to be huge. Yeah. And then your friends, your family, everyone says, is it huge yet? Have I read about you in the front page of the New York Times? No. Well, that's something that you have to have the resilience to for me, I just have a, I have a good sense of humor about it. But other people, it can, you know, you have to find your own way to deal with that because until you're a success by whatever, you know, measure you want to have, every day that you're not a success, you're not a failure. But you can feel like you are, yeah, right? Because whatever you have, you know that you want something bigger and better. So that's partly why we call the company Hockey Stick is this feeling. And I always believe that name your company something evocative and creative, not accurate because you're going to change and nobody will remember your accurate name. Everyone remembers Hockey Stick. And, you know, we've got these lovely Hockey Stick pens now, which are, I really believe maybe that's the more successful business. People <laughs> just go crazy for these pens. I will give you a pen. And if your listeners who want a pen can shoot me an email. <laughs> so why do you feel that Hockey Stick is so necessary for the startup and investor ecosystem? You know, Hockey Stick exists because there's a huge problem that still has not been solved, which is in the private markets, let's call them, it's just as large globally as the public market. But the public market has 
reams and reams of data because it's regulated, right? The regulators, you know, de- depending on, on what country you're in, there's different levels of transparency, the UK being on the leading edge of that. So real, real kudos to the UK regulators. But, you know, there's a problem here, which is there's a lot of money going into the private market, but there's not the fundamental protections that good data will provide you, even knowing what are people investing in. Is it growing? Is it shrinking? These are basic fundamental things that you get in any public exchange. So there's this idea that you know, most economies in the world are investing in innovation, and they, they love the idea of building unicorns in their backyard. And you know, this kind of idea of building small business into big business is you know, job growth, economic prosperity. We all want that. And we want to make money as uh, investors as well. There's no data underpinning this. And the data that exists is bad, it's inconsistent. And so that's our goal is we want to fill in that gap. We want to have not only the best data, but we want to build kind of the infrastructure around that data so that if you're a, you know, a UK investor and you want to come to Chicago and invest, or you or your fund wants to invest for diversification reasons in private companies here, it's next to impossible to do that right now. But with good data and technology around it, you should be able to do that, maybe not at the level of buying and selling shares on the stock market because the regulations don't allow you to do that, but using data to manage your risk, finding new opportunities and being a better investor, that's what we're trying to do. And that benefits everybody, right? It benefits definitely the entrepreneurs because fundraising is still very difficult. And there's a lot of friction in fundraising, which is not beneficial, right? It's having to personally go, you know, travel around, do a roadshow, pitch people with a PowerPoint deck is, it's kind of a rite of passage, but, you know, there's no data that says that's the best way to raise money. Not at all, just the opposite. So we're trying to solve that problem to create more sources of capital, which I believe will create better companies who have easier access to the right capital and then to be able to build on top of that. I mean, we haven't even talked about other things that the public markets do like, you know, algorithmic trading, you know, applying AI to, you know, arbitrage opportunities, all these things that people have been doing for decades in the public market because the data exists. We'd like to get there as well, actually using technology to drive higher returns to new opportunities in the private market. We're not there yet. We're still at the level of who are the companies. I was at a session, a breakfast session today, and we're just asking how difficult it is as angels in the early stage, even to know the company exited, right? So we haven't solved that problem yet, but that's our big vision. That's kind of our goal. I know myself and the listeners will all be watching out for Hockeystick. It's going to be a hugely important aspect of the startup ecosystem for investors and entrepreneurs in the future. So we've heard a lot about successes over the last 20 odd years. Can you just tell us about a failure you've had and kind of what you've learned from it? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the early experiences I had was a failure. And so, you know, I was saying earlier that, you know, I had this sort of concentrated MBA of the first part of it was, you know, how to build a business purely on cash flow when, you know, I didn't know what a balance sheet was. I didn't know what anything was. You know, I've never seen a legal contract before when I started. And so the first half of it was, you know, oh, learning, you know, and, you know, I remember every two weeks being completely frightened about just making payroll. And so you have these little failures along the way of, 
you hire your friends, not necessarily the best people to hire. You know, as a manager and a founder, maybe you focus too much on being well-liked, especially you're young, they're the same age as you and, and you hang out. I'm still friends with, of course, everybody in my team, but at the beginning, too focused on, you know, how come they don't like me? And then it's very difficult. So they're the kind of day-to-day failures that I got very accustomed to. My ego was very healthily humbled because you just had to survive, right? Survival is not very glamorous. But then, you know, when I we spun out into this venture-backed company, seeing the kind of sky falling around me and not being able to kind of do the things that I wanted to do, not having the capital and really thinking, oh, but how can I pivot? But not being able to pivot because all of my investors, they had to get out of their positions. And I think that, you know, the failure of that business, it taught me one thing that I'll say that I don't hear a lot of people talk about, which is how to behave when your company is failing. Because I tried to be very upfront, even in, you know, tempers were kind of, you know, nerves were fraying with my board and investors and employees. And in the end, we laid off all of the employees, right? But I kind of learned that I really needed to focus on how I was going to behave. And I couldn't deliver the outcome that I wanted to deliver in that company, but I could control whether I was a good person, I had integrity, you know, and I kind of vowed that the employees were my number one concern. I was not going to have them show up. I'm gone. They see a letter from the lawyer, you know, so I said, we're going to wind things down in a way that is respectful to the employees, give them lots of notice. And I was going to be the last person there to turn the lights off. And the same with the board. And, you know, when we ended up selling to another company, I wasn't getting paid a salary anymore because there's no money in the company. I just said, you know, however long it takes, I'm going to see this through. And so I treated everybody with the maximum respect and I remain friends with most of the people that invested in this company to this day. So, you know, some of them have reinvested in my businesses. And I think that taught me a lesson about you can't always control whether your venture succeeds or fails, but you can definitely control how you behave. And your reputation is much longer than your financial success. So 20 years later, nobody really remembers, oh, did I make money or did you give me, you know, they don't really remember, but they remember how I behaved. And I'm proud of that. Nobody's proud of their failures, but I'm proud of the fact that, you know, I don't have to avoid them in the supermarket kind of thing. So that began the journey of kind of like, oh, you know, I can survive that failure. That built my resilience. Now I can tell other people, don't worry about it. You know, if your company fails, it's not the end of the world. In fact, fail faster is what I tell people. It's if your idea is not working, you have a much better idea inside of you. And you've got the skill set. And now you've got the benefit of this experience of like, you can take that failure, go do something else. And so many opportunities. So I'm an optimistic person by nature. Not to say that when you're failing, it feels good because it doesn't feel good. But you always have to think about the next thing. Yeah, that's a hugely important lesson for entrepreneurs, whether or not it's your first venture or whether it's your third or fourth, just to know that fail elegantly. So Raymond, we've heard about so many different ventures over the last 20 years. What does the future hold? Well, for us, we're starting to realize our namesake. So the company is really growing. You know, one big thing we're doing now is really expanding internationally. You know, we started in Canada. We're really quite dominant there. And we've got a lot of support from our community there, you know, in partnerships like with the Angel Capital Association in America and others, you know, all around the world, people are reaching out to us and saying, you know, that thing you've done that we keep hearing about, we have that same problem in our country. 
or in our region or our industry. And it's something that we knew in our gut that it wasn't just a North American issue. But now we're really excited by this growth because we really saw Hockey Stick as a way to you know, be the world's best source of data about private companies and to be a real platform that you know, globally, if you're interested in investing in private companies or building a private company, in some way you want to be involved with Hockey Stick. So I think big thing for us is international growth and also really starting to apply more and more, more advanced technology to the data that we have. It's, we have a really long-term vision about how do we take the data, which is really only the first step, and create new opportunities that people aren't even aware of. So everything from, you know, people talk about blockchain a lot and, you know, trading securities, you know, being more like a stock exchange for private securities, helping in the fund formation and using data to drive, you know, what are the right funds to form, to invest in, whether you're an LP, GP, angel, sidecar fund. And people always forget that the securities market is always evolving too. You know, there's new forms of digital securities that are being invented in places like you know, Singapore and the UK and all around the world. So we're just at the beginning, I believe. You know, we're still in the blade of the hockey stick curve as a whole industry. Yeah. So we're really excited. We love industries where there's infinite growth, we believe. And um, yeah, we're, we're really excited by this kind of growth and you know, there's nothing more gratifying than seeing a vision kind of realized. And so we hope to be doing this for a long time. We're very long-term thinkers. We think, geez, I wonder what's going to happen in 20 years. And so, you know, that gets us up every morning. Yeah, I doubt this is your last entrepreneurial venture either. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> if I start another company, I'm going to blame you. Yeah. <laughs> Raymond, it's been just fascinating. And thank you for being so open and honest about your business journey. I know the listeners will absolutely love it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from The Invested Investor. Investor.